Um, go to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this passage. And then I'm going to pray for us. Because uh, the part of this passage, we've been looking at Romans. Um, we started, I think somebody said this is the eighth sermon in Romans. Five of them have been about the um, sort of helpless state of mankind. So, so essentially, Paul has, has labored the point here right at the beginning that he has some great news. He wants to get to the gospel. He wants to tell you the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And then he hits the brakes and begins to tell us for over two chapters, but you have to know the bad news before you can know why the good news is so good. And so this morning, beginning in verse 9, we'll read to verse 20. This is kind of the exclamation point. It's the summary of his argument. It's his closing argument on everything he's been talking about, our helpless and hopeless state of mankind. And I want to tell you this morning why this bad news is actually part of the good news of the gospel that's about to come. So I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, and then we'll walk through it together. Here's what Paul writes, beginning Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Uh, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and ears to see and to hear. And Father, you would, just this, this word this morning, your word would come down like rain and it would, um, it would bring to life uh, fruit and, and joy that, that Father may land on, on dry and barren soil this morning. I pray that by your spirit, you, your word would not return void and that it would do a work in drawing us to your Son, Jesus. We, we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, I'll begin this way. Uh, Leslie and I were watching TV the other day, and we, there was a commercial on TV, and, um, and, and just so you know, if I've watched the commercial, I've totally done it wrong. I've tried to organize my entire life around never watching commercials, but... There, we were watching it, and this commercial was on, and it was for a coffee creamer, of all things. And the coffee creamer, it promised at the, at the, you know, the end of the, of the commercial, 
It's the, this, you know, this type of coffee. It'll change everything. <laughs> so I sat there and I looked at it. I said, did, it, did the coffee creamer say that it would change everything? I mean, that's a, that's a big statement. I mean, part of me is like, I got to get that coffee creamer, you know? I'd, I'd change everything. Well, then we began talking. You know, it's interesting. You'll hear it now. You'll see a lot of advertisers, a lot of things that get advertised or a lot of things that you see online, blogs or posts. When people are trying to hook you, when they want you to be interested, notice how often the promise is that this will change everything. Remember the commercial of a year ago or so, and it was, the, it was like these little drops you put in your water, and it was called Mio, you know, and they had this commercial, and this guy, he's sitting there, and he, at the end of the deal, you know, he starts off, he looks like a regular, you know, guy sitting in an office, and at the end, he's, you know, he's got a cowboy hat on, and, you know, it, because you put the drops in your water, and it changes everything. Well, so I looked it up, who, so who else uses this? Well, here's the, all right, so coffee creamers. Um, the, the berry pomegranate Mio, iPads, Pampers, Coca-Cola, Coors Light, uh, Stranger Things, their t-shirt advertisement this last summer, the Netflix did, was one summer can change everything. The Guardian um, posted a, a, an article um, entitled, Which Technological Wonders Are Set to Change Everything? Google Chrome has a uh, a commercial where in the background is, is the song Change Everything by Charisma. Uh, Tech Magazine, I was looking at this week, promised or warned that, that Google cars will change everything. The New York Times posted a year ago, um, musing, what, what decade or what year in the last decade changed everything? There's no end to the blogs and posts and things you can click on, you know, this one thing or this one habit or, or this one clue to this or that, it'll change everything. And of course we know, I mean, we know, right? I mean, we know it won't change everything. I mean, I think we know it. And yet we still find ourselves sort of clicking on it just in case, right? It's interesting that the power of a, of a promise to change everything. You know, the advertisers know its pull and, and despite... Um, all that they know, I mean, so, so they know two things. They know that, listen, whatever it is, it's not going to change everything. And they also know that deep down, we don't really believe it will change everything. But they still use it because it still works. And it works because it has power. They know the pull. They know that deep inside every single one of us is a sucker, right? Right? for something that just might, maybe, probably won't, but I'll click on it and see anyways, change everything. See, what, what, what's going on underneath is that at some level it reveals what we all know, and that something's wrong. I mean, underneath bland water and outdated technology and boring summers and all the rest of it, something deeper lives in every single person. That something deeper is this knowledge that, you know what, something's wrong. Something needs to be changed. Something isn't right. It needs to be fixed. And while most people know it, you can't always put your finger on it. You can't always go, oh yeah, well, it's this thing. Well, the good news is in this passage, Romans chapter three, Paul's gonna tell us exactly what the thing is. 
Paul's going to take and put his finger exactly on that very something that we all know is wrong. And in one way, this, this something that's wrong, this, this bad news that, 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 that Paul's going to put an exclamation point on actually becomes part of the good news. Because until you understand what is wrong and how desperately wrong it is, then you can't fully hear and know what this gospel is, what the good news of the gospel is. And so Paul's going to, in these verses, he is going to diagnose the human condition. I mean, he, 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 is, he is going to do surgery you know, with a scalpel on our soul here. He, he's going to identify the thing that we all know is there and give language to that thing that, 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 all in, that inside all of us is a sucker that the change everything promises appeal to. So it's a summary of everything he said, beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 18. This is Paul's closing argument. It is his summary. It is his exclamation point. And in verse 9, it says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And it sounds a little bit like the question he asked at the beginning of chapter 3, if you were here last week, where he, he asked, well, what advantage has the Jew? You know, I mean, so does, does the Jew not have any advantage, Paul? Is there no profit in the, in the um, religious practices that we have? And at, at that point, Paul says, no, no, there's a lot of profit in it. There's a lot of advantage. But don't mistake the advantage of, of being born in the, in the line of Abraham and, and, and being a, a, a recipient in, in, in ways to a, to a covenant that comes through Abraham that will be unconditionally filled. Don't mistake that for thinking somehow you're better off because of it. Because everybody's going to stand judgment before God and he's going to tell us clearly why we're going to stand judgment. But notice what he does. He, he, he changes the pronoun here. You'd miss it a hundred times, you know, 99 out of a hundred times unless you were looking for it. But he says, are, are we any better off? And what Paul is saying is, listen, I know I've been pointing the finger. I know I've been making accusations. I know that I have indicted you fully for the condition that you're in. But I just want you to know I'm in the same condition. I share in the same problem that you have. I, down in my core, have a problem that I cannot fix either on my own. And notice um, how he's going to say it. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the problem of sin uh, is, is, a, is a problem that mankind cannot overcome on his own or on her own. Sin creates for every person a situation of utterly helpless bondage. His point to the Jews are this, listen, if the Jews, if the Jews who had the very best law that one could have, this, as Paul will call in, in, in chapter 7, the holy, righteous, and good law, the law that came to Moses, the one that, that, the, that the Jewish people had preserved, the very oracles of God, if, if, if that law, the very best law, could not 
was not sufficient enough for them to help them escape judgment and, and then thus ultimately not have salvation, then any system, any system of works or improvement falls woefully short and is unable to conquer the power of sin. See, it, what he's speaking about is this human inability to meet the demands of God. This is the very diagnosis that Paul's been arguing for. The problem is not, it is not simply that you commit sins. That's not the problem. The, the problem that he's speaking of is that you, you are in bondage, you are enslaved to sin, capital S. That, that you have a problem that's far beyond just the little sins you commit. You, you have a problem that has infected the very core of who you are and you are in bondage. So what he's going to do for emphasis, for, for, for proof, for validation, he, he is going to um, draw upon the theological understanding uh, on the human condition. It's not new. And he's going to string together from the writings of the Old Testament, from the oracles of God, to prove his point. He begins in verse 10, and he says, as it's written, which means as it's written in the Old Testament. He's doing, the, the rabbis used to call it stringing pearls. And so he's, a, he's about to quote from somewhere between six and 10 Old Testament passages, mostly from Psalm, also Isaiah, Jeremiah are included in there. And, and he's going to... Um, substantiate this accusation that he is making. And it actually, I was reminded this week, to become a member at Bethel, one of the things we say is we want you to affirm um, our doctrinal statement, and particularly our, our core uh, doctrines, the essential doctrines. And there's eight of them. They're on our website. You can find them. But number four of our essential doctrines, it reads like this, that we affirm an essential doctrine of the history of the church is the spiritual lostness of all humanity and the need for regeneration. And, and um, there's no, so, so a lot of places you go in the Bible, this may be one of the most clear places where Paul speaks to, to this um, um, condition that all of us have of spiritual lostness. And it's owing to Sin. He's going to say sin is universal, which means everybody, every single person is under the bondage and the power of sin. You, you, you cannot manage it. You, you cannot keep it at bay. You, 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 you can't house it you know, like a pet. It, it, is, it is something that has you in bondage. It is, it is universal for every single one of us, and it is all pervasive which means it has affected every part of who you are. You know, the old theological term for that is total depravity, which doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but it does mean we're as bad off as we can possibly be. I mean, there's no part of us, there is no part of us that has not been stained by sin. And our, our good deeds, our good works, our, our self-improvements do nothing to overcome the separation that sin creates in our life from God. 
See, we stand condemned, not because of what we've done. Paul's going to say, we stand condemned because of who we are. We're, we're born sinners. Paul will say in Ephesians that we are born dead in our sin. So he's saying, listen, these are not my words. I'm going to string them together. You're going to see that these aren't my words. They're not any other human being's words. These are the charges from God. He is the ultimate judge against all humanity. These are his charges against you and against me. In fact, Chuck Swindoll in his commentary, he calls this section, he calls it the autopsy of depravity. He says this, the standard by which our righteousness, our right standing with God is measured is not merely the goodness of a very good person, but the unblemished, perfect character of God. God has placed the goodness of each person on a scale opposite his own perfection. And no one, not even the best of us, has been or can be good enough. In verse 11, no one understands and no one seeks for God. So, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I see people that are seeking. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, no, listen, religion, that, that's man seeking for God. Religion is what man does to improve himself and keep God at bay. We, we want all the benefits of God. We just don't want God. And religion is man searching for God. Christianity, the, the gospel, tells us we didn't search for him. He came seeking us. We didn't love him first. He loved us first. And he had to do that because sin had created this, this wall, this barrier in our life that we didn't even know. I mean, we, we couldn't get over it. and we, it too much, we can't go around it and we can't dig under it. It, 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 it completely walls us off. It keeps us from seeking. It, it's, a, it's a problem bigger than we can ever fully know. But Paul wants us to come to terms with it. You know, on, um, on April 26th of uh, 1986, um, you, maybe you watched the documentary uh, recently on Chernobyl, but, but the uh, number four reactor, um, a series of events set it off. There was a nuclear chain reaction. It ultimately um, it, uh, created uh, an explosion where the fallout of uh, plutonium and uranium uh, began to uh, uh, infect an area um, so greatly that they estimated it would be hundreds, hundreds of years before anyone could ever live in that area again. The, the, the struggle to safeguard is the worst nuclear disaster the, the world's you know, known. And, and to safeguard against the, the, the hazards um, that, that happened immediately after the accident and then later on to, to try to clean up the area of the surroundings. It, it cost 18, at the time, 18 million um, Soviet rubles, which in today's language would be about 68 billion U.S. dollars. By the year 2000, what they had de determined is that the number of the Ukrainians deemed to be radiation sufferers and, and thereby receiving state benefits was up to 3.5 million people. Or, or think about it this, it was 5% of their population. 
you know, an interesting note. 40 years before Chernobyl happened, uh, the New York Times in, in June 1946 does an interview with a scientist who was involved in, in sort of understanding and helping us sort of unlock what, uh, you know, uh, the first nuclear um, uh, science, first nuclear weapons. Um, and it was a few months after uh, Hiroshima, a few months after Nagasaki, and they go to interview Albert Einstein. And Einstein says this. They were asking about the effects of plutonium and nuclear fallout. He says this, it is easier to denature plutonium than it is to denature the evil spirit of a man. Denaturing plutonium means altering it so it can't be used in nuclear devices, means to bring it under control, to, to render it and the effects of it harmless. Think of all the time, all the money spent to clean up Chernobyl, yet Einstein says this, denaturing plutonium, de denaturing Chernobyl is nothing compared to what it takes to deal with the evil spirit of man. This is what Paul's saying. You, you don't even know. You, you, you're not even aware. You can't be aware because when you look in the mirror, all you see is the mask you've put on and the good things you're trying to cover up. And, and, and no one wants to come to the admission about themselves that this is who they are. There's a guy named Gregory Billy wrote a book. It was, the title of the book was We Become What We Worship. We become like what we worship. And his whole premise is that we have all these strategies we've, we've pursued and all of them had, have ended up betraying us, that they've become idols that we worship. So, so by our very nature as human beings, we're created to be like what we worship and we were created in the image of God. We were created to reflect his image. Not that we were to become gods, but we were to become like him. We were to reflect him. That's what we were created for. And yet, we, we, we were created for one thing. We turned away from the one who created us and turned away from the purpose for which we were created. But yet, we went out looking for things to worship. We followed all of our desires. We followed all of our, our heart's longings. All of us became idol worshipers. And we became, we have become like those things we have turned to. And those things that, that we turned to that promised us so much, the reality is they end up betraying us. This next section, is verses 12 through, through uh, uh, 18, it's like, it's like Paul's talking to a sketch artist about who we are. Well, you know, his, 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 you know, his mouth, was, their mouth was like this, and then their, their feet, well, yeah, their feet was, were like that, and then their throat and the lips, and, and the, oh, yeah, the eyes. Oh, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget those eyes. He's giving us a physical description of what we have become. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. In fact, verses 10 through 12, they're all a quotation from Psalm 14. And, and you also find it in Psalm 53, but it's where God, through, the, through David, is, is indicting the human race. He's, you know what he's saying about the human race? They're all fools. All of them. God looks down on the human race and he sees a, a, a people who are thoroughly corrupted by sin. And no one does good. They've turned aside, they've become Worthless. God designed us 
with, with certain needs that only he can fulfill, longings that only he can fulfill, that, that, um, objects of, of desire and worship that, that only he can meet. And yet we went to all these other things, these longings to pursue these fleeting and finite and temporal and, and destructive things. And here's the deal, they, they not only fail to fill our longings, they leave us more empty than we were before and they leave us as worthless as they are. Verse 13, he says, their throats an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive and the venom of asp is under their lip and then the mouth is full of curses. He's pulling here, the, Paul is from, from Psalm 5 and uh, in, in, in Jeremiah 5 about those who, who's, who destroy lives with the very words they say. They, they destroy other people's lives. They make promises that they can't deliver. They, they, they promise something and yet deliver emptiness. Chuck Swindoll comments, he, he says this, he says, they, he, uh, David is, Paul is using David to talk about this more general principle concerning things that are false. He says, faith healers prey upon the pain of those willing to do anything, go anywhere, pay any amount to end their suffering. Mediums and channelers convince the distraught that a modest fee will help them communicate with their deceased loved ones. Religions of all sorts promise salvation in exchange for deeds of service or sacrifice. What they are, all of them, are idols. They are gods we follow after and worship. David, and Paul's quoting David, is God addressing out of Psalm 10, Psalm 5, Jeremiah, those that are arrogant and wicked and deceitful. And then in verse 15, he says, the feet, their feeders are swift to shed blood and, and their paths are ruin and misery and the, the way of peace, they haven't known it. It's the history of humanity, isn't it? A guy named Will... Durant wrote Lessons from History in the last 3,421 years of recorded history. There's only been 268 years. There's no war. But we are destructive people. And then he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The, the psalmist in Psalm 111.10, and then you'll hear, hear it from Solomon in, in Proverbs and, and all through the wisdom literature, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the starting point. And yet it's also the stumbling block. What is the fear of God? Well, Paul here is quoting from Psalm 36, and he's talking about the wicked and how they don't fear God because what they're doing is they're hearing from, allowing to influence the, the, the sin that whispers deep into their heart. They cherish that. See, no one seeks God. And what sin pictures is, is, a, is a people, a person, an individual, you, me, 
running from God. Because sin, you know what it does? It causes you to forget that there's God. It makes him unreal to you. It's the opposite of fearing him. And the truth is, we, we hear this. We, we look in this mirror. We see this sketch that Paul's painted and, and what he's described. And, 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 and no one wants to see that. We go, no, that doesn't look like me. And then we're quick to point out all our goodness and all our good works and our moral virtues and the things, the things we haven't done. And yet Paul exposes all of us. Old preacher J.C. Riley said, one, one of our, our best duties are as so many splendid sins. What he's saying is all the good things you do, all the things you're counting on, all the, all the things, when you look in the mirror and you go... I'm better, better than I was last year. All of that. He says, you must not only be made to be sick of your sin, you must be made to be sick of your goodness and all your duties and all the ways you perform. There must be a deep conviction before you that can be brought, that, so that you can be brought out of your self-righteousness because that, that's the last idol taken out of your stone heart. Well, how does that happen? Well, Paul tells us in verses 19 and 20, look what he says. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. So, so that every mouth might be shut. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's what Paul's saying. That the law, it, it, it comes to you. It, it comes to you like, uh, like a thermometer. I mean, it, it comes and it takes your temperature. It says, hey, you're sick. And you say, well, wait, what do I mean? You, know, you ever been around somebody that's sick? And you can tell by looking at them, you're sick. And they go, no, no, I'm not sick. It's like, it looks like you have a fever. And they go, no, I don't, I don't feel hot. And you're like, you, you know it doesn't work that way, right? You stick the thermometer in their mouth and sure enough, two minutes later, they fever. You know, they're sick. They got, the, they got the flu. See, here's the thing. Paul's saying, listen, you're sick. You're already a sinner. You, you, you have this, um, this uh, um, incurable, fatal disease called sin. And God comes along and brings his standard. He gives his law. His holiness comes to us in his law and it reveals our condition. And whether it is the law written as it was inspired and written and preserved by God's people or if it's just the law written on your conscience. The law that's in eight that you know right and wrong. And you know how that's betrayed you. It comes to identify the incurable disease that every one of us shares. Charles Spurgeon gave this an example um, as an illustration. And remember, this is 150 years ago, but here's what he said. He said, some fancy that they've done a great many good works. He said, in cherishing that delusion... 
They are like a Hindu of whom I once heard. He believed that he must not eat any animal substance or that if he did, he would perish. So he comes across a missionary and a missionary told him, he said, well, that idea is ridiculous. You can't drink a glass of water without swallowing thousands of living creatures. The man didn't believe him. And so the missionary takes a drop of water, he puts it under a microscope, and when the man sees the innumerable, I mean, too too many to count, living creatures in the drop of water, you know what he did? Broke the microscope. That was his answer. Luther describes it this way. The, The principal point of the law, the reason for the law, in true Christian theology is to make people not better, but worse. That that is to say, it shows them their sin so that they may be humbled and terrified and bruised and broken and by this means be driven to seek comfort and so to come to that blessed Christ. You see, this is why this is part of the good news. This is the, this is the good news of the bad news because it brings you to a place where your heart can be tuned to hear the gospel. The, the, the law comes and it, and, it, and it imprisons you in your sin. It, can, it condemns you. It declares you guilty. It shows you your nakedness. It laughs. It mocks your fig leaves. The law comes to bring a man or a woman to the end of themselves so that their heart longs to be saved. See, God uses the law to show us that we're sinners so that he can save us. See, the Jews, they thought the law is, well, this is going to protect us. It's like this high wall and, and we'll live inside of it and none of the bad things will get in and none of the good things will get out and it's, you know, it's like this great wall of China around us. And it was a wall. They just didn't know it was a, it was a prison. It wasn't preserving their goodness. It was enslaving them to their sin. Everything, everyone is in the bondage of sin. You know, so you say, people say, you know, God helps those that help themselves. You ever heard that? So we don't, I mean, we're church people. We don't really say that. We know that that's wrong. But, you know, so many, so many people live that way. Paul says, no, no, no. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who come to the end of themselves. That's what Paul wants. He wants you to come. That's why he spent verse after verse after verse wanting you to understand you are helpless. That like Jeremiah says, your heart is far more wicked than you can even imagine. And you have no hope. Because only then, only then can you by faith take hold of the gospel. Martin Luther used to talk about faith this way. He says it doesn't just mean that you mentally assent to a gospel truth. It means means coming to a place where you throw yourself onto God 
And every text of Scripture, understood in its context, calls us to throw ourselves on God. And no text, understood rightly from its context, ever calls us to throw ourselves onto ourselves. That God's Word doesn't come as a guide for your self-improvement. It comes as an instrument to your death. So that you come to a place of humility and cry out to God. Oh, wretched man or woman that I am. Who can save me? It calls us bids us to a humility. And humility is the frequency, it's the setting of our, our heart that grace can be received. The, the law comes, it reveals our sin and, and it, it helps to tune our hearts to humility so that we can hear the gospel of grace. You know, it's not until you see the hopelessness of your situation are you real willing to receive the hope of a Savior. It's not until the law has run you to the end of yourself that you can hear and be ready for the promise of Jesus. Warren Wiersbe closes his section um, this way, and I'll, I'll use it as our closing this morning. He says, the best way to close this section would be to ask a simple question. Has your mouth ever been stopped? Are you boasting of your own self-righteousness and defending yourself before God? If so, then perhaps you have never been saved by God's grace. It is only when we stand silent before Him as sinners that He can save us. As long as we defend ourselves or commend ourselves, we cannot be saved by God's grace. The whole world is guilty before God. And that includes you. And that includes me.